Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krauss explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. We've done many shows talking about contract negotiations, but what happens if everything goes south after you've already started that job or after you've signed that contract and you think you might need an attorney? I would like to welcome Brandon Chow, and he's an attorney in New York State. He started out as an assistant district attorney with major crimes in New York, but has since had many stops on the road and now has his own firm where he works with complex employment litigation and workplace disputes. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Thank you very much, Tammy. Nice to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you and your expertise. I'm happy to share it. (laughs) I mean, obviously, we can't provide legal advice in this type of forum because that's so individualized. But I thought maybe we could take some case studies of things that have happened to other people and maybe just kind of talk through those a little bit. Would that work for you? That'd be great. All right. So I'm going to pose these as questions coming from doctors who have gone through these situations themselves. So we'll just start out with the first question. I am graduating residency soon and signed a contract to join a surgical group. I was happy with my contract until I learned that one of my male co-residents also signed with the same group and was offered a substantially higher starting salary. I am even the chief residency for a residency program, which I think should make me more valuable, not less. The only difference I can see is that he is male and I am female. Is gender discrimination alive and well in medicine? And is there something I can do or am I stuck since I've already signed the contract? As an initial matter, being an attorney in this field, I would see gender discrimination being alive and well. But there could be a number of explanations for why they're doing this. But under this particular fact pattern, it'd be hard to see justification for it. But the real question is, what is this person to do when she finds out about it? And one of the discussions we had off air was some practical considerations about going in to discuss the concerns. And one of the issues would be to go in and allege gender discrimination or to say there's an Equal Pay Act violation. And while this may be absolutely true, it's not going to influence the potential employer in any positive way. It's going to get them in a very defensive posture. And if they were to try that, I would think that offer may be revoked. But the practical consideration is what do you do about it? And absolutely, I would recommend to speak up and not necessarily make these allegations of discrimination, but to go back in there, knock on the door and go back in there and say that I've reconsidered the offer. And I think that the offer to me is undervaluing my services. Under this particular fact pattern, it may be obvious to the employer that the pay of the comparator male has gotten out and that secret is out. But so be it. At least you've got a place to start with asking for more money and you've got your experience to justify it. You haven't said anything about discrimination, but you're asking for more because the industry or the practice at that time supports it. 
and that it's a reasonable request. And the employer, having already given out that offer to the male comparator, is paying that. They've already accepted that as a reasonable number. So what this person is asking is not unreasonable. So I think that approach is preferable than to walk in and point fingers. Sounds like you'd start out on a better footing if you did take that job, if you came in threatening a lawsuit, I mean, before day one, that that's putting you in a pretty bad predicament. Yeah. Setting you up for a bad situation. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And unfortunately, the reality is if this is the pay scale on the way in, it may be a, a bit of a, an omen for what may be coming. That may be more doom and gloom, but I think if there's a substantial pay difference between this person and the comparator, the male comparator, that's a problem. But you have to ask. And as we mentioned, if you don't ask, you don't get. That's true. All right, let's move on to number two. I work for an academic institution and have a department chair who is verbally abusive and sets the schedule to punish those physicians who have gotten into his crosshairs. I brought this up to the section chief and filed a formal complaint with HR. I thought that was the end of it, but I just received a new contract and have been given a pay cut. I feel like this is retaliation for voicing my concerns, but I'm not sure I could prove it. Any words of advice on how to move forward? Moving to a new location is not a good option in my circumstances. Yeah, this is a tough case. And one of the things I've told clients, potential clients when they call in to discuss problems just like this is that being a jerk is not illegal in and of itself. Now, if a person is being a jerk to you because of your ethnicity, your gender, your religion, those things are clearly discriminatory and there's a claim there. But when you've got a boss who is just taking it out on you because you've complained, there's not a whole lot you could do illegally. There's no right to sue for that. The only thing that may be available would be some type of employee handbook provision that talks about no retaliation for voicing your complaints. And I've seen that in various handbooks where the handbook itself will give you some recourse, but that's rare because most of these handbooks are prepared in such a way that nothing in it is meant to create a private right of action or a cause of action or to make you some type of protected employee, like a union worker. So I think there's not a lot you can do about it other than to complain again and suffer the wrath again. This is one of those situations where it's, it's just bad and the ultimate recourse may be just to either suck it up or move it on to some other place. But none of those options in this particular case sound like they're viable, but not every call that I get ends in good news for them. And this sure. is one of those situations where I think there's not a lot there. We talked before the show and you mentioned that some states are coming up with anti-bullying legislation, but you said there are some pros and cons to that. Can you kind of go through that a little bit? Absolutely. The anti-bullying movement has been, has been going on, sorry, has been going on for some time. And there's some states that have paid lip service to it and said that they don't accept it in any circumstances, but they don't take the next step forward and make a statute that says in the event that you've been bullied, you may bring a cause of action or a lawsuit with these damages. And the problem is 
no legislature, frankly, I think maybe rightfully so, wants to create a lawsuit for every workplace problem. And so if there was this legislation, the loss, the courts would be absolutely chock full of lawsuits where people that have got a beef at work now bring it into court. And I think it would do a disservice to the other discrimination statutes, the Equal Pay Act claims, things like that, I think would be watered down because the courts would absolutely get inundated with claims from aggrieved workers or, gosh, you could fill in the blank for Anything, yeah. workers. Yeah, that you've seen that they've, they feel that they've been wronged for. Okay, let's see. Let's move on. I will be graduating fellowship next summer and found my dream job, but the contract seems very vague and leaves lots of room for interpretation. I asked specific questions for things that concern me, but was told the contract is standard and cannot be changed. Is this common? And does it mean I have to either take it or leave it? Right. It is common to be told it's standard and cannot be changed, but I don't think it's standard for that to be the last the word on it. Most employers don't want to get into a situation where they're negotiating every contract that they execute or that they deliver to a new employee. But in, I think in this field, it's it wouldn't be the same as you know the city hiring you know 500 sanitation workers, where they need to have this you know blanket policy. So even if there's this position that you can't change, we can't change this. I think you need to be able to push back and explain why you're asking for additional interpretation or explanation because I get the call two years into a contract or a year into the contract where now they've got a problem. And when I read the contract, it doesn't give them any rights. And so now what do they do? And my parting shot to them is next time on the way in, negotiate a better deal. Okay. And that's not, that's not great. But as we said at the outset or off camera, uh, offline, this is a good time, I think, for a young physician coming in to start to find their voice and asking questions, learning about the process and not being shy about making some demands. It doesn't have to be couched as a demand per se, but a request asking for an explanation. And as we said, asking for an explanation forces them to possibly explain some very unreasonable clause in the contract. And when it comes out of their mouths and for you to be listening to that across the table or over the phone, and you say, well, that's not fair after they just explained it to you, I think it puts you in a good position now to, to have some discussion about that or perhaps bring it back up to the decision makers to voice the concerns you have. And again, if you don't ask, you don't get. And that's absolutely true here. What about, I don't know, I hear a lot of people that say when they sign with big corporations or academic institutions, you know, exactly this, the contract is what it is. But when you find those concerns, have you had luck in helping people negotiate for maybe an addendum, trying to get you know a special compensation to explain paragraph three on page five in such a way that makes that contract more palatable? Absolutely. Oftentimes I'm called upon to review a contract or 
oftentimes they're offer letters. They're what people think are contracts, but they're really just an offer of employment. It spells out the, the, the compensation, but I will review that and then I'll make some notations and I'll let the client know, okay, this third paragraph here, you need to be concerned with this. And I'll highlight it and show it to them. And I'll suggest they go back to the employer with my markup, not physically, but go back and discuss it with them and say, I've got these concerns. Now, they can make an addendum as a, an exhibit, but what you're looking for is just for them to change the contract right in there. Because let's say the termination can occur for any reason. That's a big one. If they say the termination can occur for any reason, that's not a contract anymore. You've become an employee at will. So the key provision in any contract, in my opinion, once you've got the numbers worked out in terms of salary, you need to make sure that for that period of time that you've committed to this place, they can't fire you on a whim. You need to be able to know that unless you do something absolutely bonkers, you've got a job to come to the next day. So in the app, and I've seen them where they don't have it. It'll say you're an employee at will. Nothing in this document will change, change that relationship. That's a deal breaker. That has to be a deal breaker. And it comes up often with people who move from out of state. They've dropped everything. They've committed to a lease. They bought a house, uprooted their families out of school. And then to find out that they've got no rights, no recourse, once the carpet is pulled out from underneath them, that's devastating. I gave you an example of offline, but that should be a deal breaker. And you need to have somebody review the contract. I'm getting a little off topic from your addendum question, but I think if you're about to embark upon this residency with the contract, despite the fact that you can read that document and you may understand it, it may make sense not that it may, it absolutely makes sense to have somebody take a look at it, a professional, to tell you this is what to look for. This is a problem. And you may never have to use that attorney again or any attorney because once you get explained, once it's explained to you what it is a problem, you'll know forever and ever that this is a problem. And the next time you go in, you'll know what to look for. So it's like an education that you file away and you've got for the rest of your life. But it's much better to pay that $500, $700, whatever the cost is, then to be turned out eight months later with no job and no recourse and basically calling up the Department of Labor for an unemployment check. So that would be very sad. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, find your voice, ask those questions, figure out what your deal breakers are and, you know, make your decisions from there. Absolutely. That's, I think that's a perfect way to summarize it is if after you've had a consultation, the problem points in the contract are spelled out and you can live with it, then okay. You've got it eyes, you've got it eyes wide open. But if there's some deal breakers in there, now you need to go in there and learn how to advocate for yourself and say no, or what about this? Or why is it this way? Because my situation is different than everybody else. I've moved here from Hawaii you know, some kind of outlier fact pattern. And in that case, that's more a reason why they should make an exception for you, perhaps. Okay, let's see. Let's move on to the final question here. 
I have been in practice for many years as a primary care physician. Unfortunately, I now have some medical issues for which I have asked for accommodations that are not expensive, but one of those includes seeing fewer patients during the course of the day. Whereas I have not been given a hard no, I am getting pushback and feel like the clinic does not want me to continue to practice medicine due to my physical disabilities. If I am still capable of doing the job, do they have a responsibility to provide reasonable accommodations under the Americans with Disability Act or any other law? Right. So the very last part of that question ends with a question. And absolutely, of course, there is a responsibility to provide a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Here in New York, there's at least two other laws, New York City and New York State, both have additional protections for employees that go far beyond what the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act provides. Lawsuits under that statute and comparable statutes are brought to interpret one of the key parts of that question, reasonable accommodation. A reasonable accommodation is going to vary from job to job and Defining reasonable becomes the basis for lawsuits. There has to be, at the very outset of the problem, a discussion between the employee and the employer to find out what kind of accommodation does this person need? And then the employer would respond with, okay, we could do that. Or no, that's just not reasonable. We're going to have to bring on a second physician to cover your early leaving on that day or whatever the request is. So more times than not, though, I do see situations where the employer can't justify taking a no position, but at least you have to have that discussion and document that discussion. And that's something we haven't discussed here is documenting discussions. One of the first questions I will always ask a new client when they call in is, did you record that? And they give me some juicy tidbit on a discussion. I'll ask, did you record that? And it's almost always a no. People don't walk around all day with their recorder ready to go. And that's, I understand that. And I'm not advocating recording. Some states don't allow it. And New York is a state that does. So I do get recordings from time to time. And this is a little far afield from the original question, but it's something that touches on all of these questions because oftentimes these cases comes down to or come down to a discussion that was had, what was discussed, and how do you prove it? The contracts are a little different. They are what they are. But if there's discussions about the performance, if there's discussions about these reasonable accommodations, they're almost always going to be not recorded. So having witnesses around emailing, I always encourage people to email their concerns to create a paper trail. There's discourage that. I've seen employers specifically tell their managers on certain sensitive topics to pick up the phone. Don't do it by email. Don't ever write an email that you wouldn't want to see in court. So that's what the employer is doing. So, and that's a pretty dark view of the employer-employee relationship, I suppose. But as a litigator in this field, I see things, you know, not so much gray areas, but if an employer is holding back on something, I don't give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's unfortunate, but that's often the case. And so if you document your efforts, if you have a way to prove your positions, that just makes your job easier down the road. And definitely mine, if I have to prove a series of conversations about something that took place. But what's reasonable, back to the original question, is 
not one that's easily answered, but a discussion needs to happen. Documenting that discussion is sometimes necessary. So if I just took notes real time and filed those away, is that sufficient? Or is it better to have that conversation with the employer and then maybe follow up with an email and say, you know, dear boss, this is my understanding of our conversation today and put that in writing throughout the email system, which way is better if you right. can't record? Yeah. Sitting there taking notes with the boss is obviously going to set off some alarms. This is just the reality of it. I, I think sitting down and jotting off an email or sending off an email after the fact would be a good way to summarize the discussion. Now, a, a shrewd employer may see that for what it is, which is a documenting of a conversation to cover themselves or to protect certain rights. But if the situation has gotten to that point where you have to consider that, then the proverbial writing on the wall may be getting etched on the wall where you may just need to take those steps and the optics of it be damned because for you to, for an individual to walk into the boss and say, this is a problem, it's gotten to the boiling point and things may never get back to where they were. And one of the things, the sad truths I have to tell potential clients is they're terminal. There's no coming back from this. You just need to protect your rights going forward until they fire you uh, or you quit. Quitting is never the ideal scenario, but um, protecting their rights is. And that's what I often do is just say, okay, this is what you have to do to ensure that your claims are preserved. And I don't think doctors are necessarily a litigious group of people, but they get wronged. They get wronged all the time too. And the question is, are they prepared to allow that to happen? Their boiling point and their skins may be much higher and thicker than the average worker. But I've had calls from physicians, not a lot, but they do call in with these exact issues. And so covering yourself and documenting it is usually very helpful. Okay. I have to say, I love your approach. I think in every one of these questions, you never said grab a lawyer, go in guns blazing and, you know, the job be damned. I think in every one of these scenarios, you were trying to maintain that relationship that maybe already existed, have a conversation, see if you can come to an agreement before you just absolutely blow up everything in the room. So I hope I didn't misinterpret anything you said, but that was kind of my takeaway from all of this is maintain that relationship if you can. That's 110%. That's absolutely my approach. And I'm happy to hear you pick up on that because early on in my career, I've been doing this 25, some 26 years. Early on, I had a much more aggressive approach. I was a trial lawyer. I still am. But nowadays, things are negotiated to resolution. But back in the day, it was kicking the doors, kick butt, take names, make them pay. But that's not always the way to resolve a dispute. And certainly in the field of medicine, where it's a pretty small world, I think, and we talked about this also, I don't think it's in the best interest necessarily of the individual physician to go in with the reputation of you know, being a butt kicker necessarily as a potential employee, because I, I think getting a job afterwards may be difficult. And that kind of butts up against the idea of protecting your rights. And so that's where I would come in to 
kind of guide through that minefield. But there are magic words that need to be said to preserve claims like discrimination, you know, harassment, things like that. Before those are ever uttered or sent to email or writing, it needs to be bad. So bad where practically crimes are being committed. And this is what I've advised clients, female clients in particular. And they know when it, it's gotten so toxic that they just don't care about the work relationship anymore. They, they're losing sleep. They can't eat. They're seeing a specialist for anxiety, depression. They're taking medication. When that, they reach that point, uh, it's time to leave that job. And I do whatever I can to protect the eventual lawsuit that's going to come. Most of my clients don't have the, you know, extraordinarily, the amount of training that the physicians have, that you physicians have, where you can't just make a, uh, a lateral move into another field. You're stuck here. Um, so you kind of have to be mindful of that and work within these certain constraints. So it's difficult to be able to assert yourself and still seem reasonable and not litigious or a squeaky wheel. But a squeaky, I'd rather be known as a squeaky wheel than a litigious physician. True. It's true. So, Sets up a bad working environment if you do stay there. Or yeah. like you said, hard to get another job if you sued the last one. So not right. the best place to start, I guess. 100%. Yeah. Brendan, if anybody hears from New York State has, you know, an issue that they want to talk about, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, my law, my website is just been completed oh, yesterday. Good. Yeah. October 25th, 2022. We just completed it. It's bchowlaw.com. And chow is spelled C-H-A-O. And that was B. As in Brendan. Right. Okay. And B, I'd love to talk to some people about any problems at work. I advertise. I help people on the way in while they're there and on the way out. So if there's a problem, give me a call. Perfect. And, and even if you. there's not a problem, even if there's not a problem on the way in, you want to make sure all those things are in place before the problems arise. Understand your contract before you sign it. Exactly. Good deal. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I really appreciate having an attorney's perspective on some of these cases that have happened to multiple physicians. So thank you so much. You're very welcome, Tammy. It was great to be here. And thank you to all the listeners. I hope you'll tune in again next week for Grand Rounds.